Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A blazing fire under the body of the nitro-powered Toyota Camry of Alexis DeJoria, and this is as bad a fire as you're ever going to see. We're talking funny cars on this show. We have Travis Shoemake and Mike Neff. Erica Anders is your 2020 Pro Stock World Champion in stunning fashion. We'll also be talking the Western Swing. Scotty's out on Andrew at 1,000 feet. It's Scotty Polachek for the first time in his career. This is the NHRA Insider. Tony Schumacher. Wow, what an appropriate way to end this one. 28 thousandths at the strike. An instant classic final round. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and today we are talking about a multitude of things, but we're going to be really concentrating on the Nitro Funny Car category of the NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series. We have Mike Neff coming on first. Mike Neff, of course, the crew chief of record for Bob Tasker the third, working with John Schaefer and currently leading the points. Want to talk about their season so far, what he's looking forward to in the Western Swing, and talk about kind of some of his background and certainly his philosophy on tuning a Nitro Funny Car, because man, nobody's doing it better in the world right now than he and John Schaefer and it's going to be fun to see how the rest of the season plays out we're also going to talk to Travis Shoemake a young man who is a second generation drag racer and a guy who is looking to break his way into the world of nitro funny car racing he's been making headlines and certainly for the right reasons the son of the late Trip Shoemake he is a guy who is highly motivated and has a very interesting story and a very interesting path that he is taking into the world of nitro funny car racing that's where he ultimately wants to end up it has been a busy couple of weeks last week Weekend, we had the Sportsman Spectacular at Norwalk following the NHRA Summit Racing Equipment Nationals and a massive Sportsman Drag Race. Some really cool stories there. Stories we're going to be following up on on this show as well as the NHRA social media side of things with Skype interviews with some of the winners like Luke Bagaki and others. It was a great race and brought out tons of great race cars as it does every single year and kind of a really cool one-two punch for Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park to have those two massive events back-to-back. We are about a week away from moving our conversation directly to the NHRA Mopar Mile High Nationals presented by Pennzoil and that's a race that all of us look forward to every year for a multitude of reasons of course the unique location of course the difficulties that come with racing in that unique location and the fact that it kicks off the western swing that three race in a row trip uh, to the western United States which this year of course we all know will be Denver Sonoma and Pomona. We'll be talking more about those races as we get closer. Some interesting racetrack news from across the country. A couple of racetracks that are kind of coming back from oblivion right now, one of which is 7580 Dragway in Maryland. And this is a place that uh, has been closed for a number of years, kind of written off uh, as being closed forever. Uh, several years ago, I visited the site with my family just as we were in the area, and it was all overgrown and everything. And, and it had obviously things had kept growing since then. But it has been leased. There is a, uh, literally as I'm making this show, there are people on the grounds rehabilitating the facility to get it ready to open up, I believe, by the end of the month of July. And this is a unique racetrack. It's been around for many years. It has sat, I believe, for close to 10 years now. So I would say between 6 and 10 years. And it's a place that you would know from an unlikely source. If you remember the show Motor Week, which actually is still on the air, Motor Week uh, did all of their auto, auto testing at 7580 Dragway. And they did it even after the racetrack had gone out of business and closed. They still had the keys to the gate, and I'm sure they had a a rental agreement with the folks that own the property. And they would go in there, and they would do quarter-mile drag strip testing. They'd do their their brake testing. They'd do their handling testing. And it was all done right there at 7580 Dragway. 
So if you've ever watched Motor Week, you have seen 7580 Dragway in Maryland. It is going to be reopening, and uh, I'm hoping it'll be reopening as an NHRA-sanctioned drag strip. There is, of course, the drag strip that has been approved uh, on Long Island, which has been a multi-year battle uh, in a good way. It has not been like a you know ugly fight. It's been a great battle, a battle of heart and soul with uh, some notable names, John Monte Calvo among them working to get drag racing back on Long Island, which, of course, was home of Long Island Raceway for many, many years. When Long Island Raceway or Long Island Dragway closed, they were left without any close options. While they now have uh, been permitted to run uh, drag races on what we would call a, basically a temporary drag strip will be NHRA-sanctioned. It is at uh, an airfield, if you will, or an, an airport. Uh, on an unused runway on Long Island. That's going to be a fun story. We're going to talk to the organizers of that operation a couple weeks down the road here. We're going to get caught up with them once they get their season underway. And then there is the story of Spokane, Washington. Uh, Spokane Raceway, a very notable track, uh, operated for many, many years under different sanctions. It was an AHRA-sanctioned track forever. Uh, The understanding now is that the track, which kind of had, again, had been written off, um, is going to be and has been, the land has been purchased by the Kalispell, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, uh, Indian tribe, the Native American tribe up there in the area has purchased the property, purchased the land, and has basically told the folks in the area that they plan on operating the racetrack as a first-class drag racing facility. It'll be neat to see what comes out of that in the next couple of months, but uh, this is positive news on three fronts. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about tracks that close or tracks that get locked down or tracks that are having problems. We really do need to make sure we highlight tracks that are that are moving in the right direction, even places that are coming back from what was seemingly going to be a very long retirement, if not an infinitely long retirement. So, Three great stories there. Once again, hoping uh, all three of them come into the NHRA sanctioning fold. I know for a fact the Long Island track is NHRA sanctioned, and uh, here's to hoping that our, our folks uh, in the divisions of 6 and 1 can work hard to uh, to get those other two tracks sanctioned by the National Hot Rod Association. But hey, listen, it's a positive story no matter which way we cut it. Anytime we're talking about racetracks opening, that is good news. That is big news. When we start talking about big news, looking forward here into the world of NHRA drag racing, uh, the big news will be made along the Western Swing. It'll be the first time in the history of uh, the NHRA Tour, the Camping World Tour, that a pro-stock motorcycle racer will have the opportunity to sweep the Western Swing. Why? Well, because they absolutely have not had the chance to ever do that before. Remember, Seattle has been a place that the bikes, if they have ever run there, uh, it has not been for a very long time. They normally run Denver and Sonoma, but don't run Seattle. Well, this year they're running Denver, Sonoma, and Pomona, so we'll find out if somebody can complete the Western Swing Sweep for the first time in the history of the Pro Stock Motorcycle category, one of the many underlying stories that will be fun to watch. Of course, we do not have the opportunity for a pro-stock car racer to do the same thing, as pro-stock car will not be racing in Denver. We have the pro-modified division up there on the mountain for that uh, running of the race, and so we'll get the pro-stock cars for Sonoma and Pomona. Make sure you get your tickets, too. Uh, the, the campground in Sonoma, I believe, is completely sold out already, and that is a just massive, massive campground. So um, it's going to be really, really fun up there in Sonoma. I know the tickets are flying off the shelves. Same could be said in Pomona. We're going to be racing at night in Southern California. You can go to NHRA.com to get the schedule, to get all the information you need, and certainly to get your tickets for those upcoming events. The crowd, as I understand it, in Denver will be 
monstrous. It is uh, very cool to hear how much interest has uh, remained, continues to be around that event. It is a signature event on the NHRA Tour, and I think it's a signature event for the city of Denver. It is a massive sporting event, and it is uh, one that has a lot of legacy. We talk about the Colorado Rockies' great baseball team, but we talk about the legacy of running the Mile High Nationals, which runs a whole lot deeper and further than the Colorado Rockies. Not taking a shot at I'm just saying the legacy of this race goes way, way back to the late 70s. Of course, there was a brief break in the 80s when the track was completely uh, rebuilt and remodeled, and then the race has been there ever since. So all those things are good stories. Uh, we had a great July 4th weekend. There was some good drag racing around the country. Managed to uh, mention the Sportsman Spectacular at Summit Racing Equipment Motorsports Park. But a lot of drag strips around the country had stuff going on, which is great to hear about. Certainly great to follow along with all the different action and many of the different series that are going on at this time of the year. The sport is healthy, and that is the most important thing we can look at overall as a whole. The options that people have to go racing and how they go racing and where they go racing are numerous, and it is great to see people supporting those options as vigorously as they are over the course of 2021. So that's really what's going on so far in the interim between last show and this show. Uh, We had great conversations on our last NHRA Insider podcast with a couple of different people. Johnny Labuse specifically, we certainly had a great conversation with him talking about his sportsman drag racing career and, and his connections to people within the world of sportsman drag racing and his massive success that he's been having so far this year. We're going to continue those style of conversations as well this week on our NHRA social media channels with Luke Bagaki, who is also having just a crusher of a year, and we'll catch up with him as well. Make sure you keep your eyes open for that. So now we have all that set aside. Let's move our conversation into the first interview of this show, and it will be with the crew chief for Bob Tasker III, Mike Zippy Neff. This is a guy who has incredible history in the sport both as a driver and as a tuner most notably as a tuner his his driving career was short but it was decorated multiple wins at races like norwalk made sure that everybody knew that mike neff could wheel a funny car as good as anybody else who's ever strapped in one but it's his tuning ability and his approach to tuning these race cars which really has set him apart and created what i would argue uh is a hall of fame career mike neff when he decides to hang it up which i hope is not for many many years from now uh is going to go into that drag racing hall of fame as one of the great crew chiefs of all time we're going to talk to him about that in the season he has been having with Bob Tasker the third now joining us for the first time ever in the NHRA Insider Podcast. It's Mike Neff. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Real good. It has been uh, it's been a heck of a year so far for you guys. There's really no other way to to kind of talk around that. I mean, it's been a, a season where three final rounds and seven races, a couple of semifinal round finishes, a runner up at Norwalk. I want to talk a little bit about kind of what's gotten you uh, the momentum in your sales so far this year. Well, um, it's been a work in progress. Um, um, last year was kind of a strange year, yeah. hit and miss. And um, with the limited amount of runs last year, you just, you know, we weren't able to do a lot of testing. And, you know, there were some things that we needed to work on. So um, it helped us out this year, the beginning of the season, to, to test. We made quite a few test runs and we were able to get some things sto- sorted out there. So, you know, we always felt like we were, you know, close. So just kind of got a couple things ironed out and, you know, just keep working at it. You know, the combination, what we got going and, and, you know, starting to get, you know, starting to get better and um, starting to, you know, make some results, which was nice to get a couple wins early on and um, get some confidence and 
just try to you know keep it going from there it really does set the tone i mean we look at teams that we look at teams that get those wins in the first kind of let's call it third of the season and then what we normally see those teams do through the middle and back half of the season is just kind of maintain if not maintain even grow on that success and and i think it's so interesting to watch especially when we come into this part of the year which is now we're basically going into the back half of what is our regular season and you know teams that have not been able to get to the winner's circle yet or teams that have maybe underperformed to their own expectations you've been there before everybody has in their career if this is the type of the year where you kind of tighten up and start to press right if, if you've not gotten those wins to this point in the year this is where things probably start to get a little bit more intense especially when we're coming up on the western swing uh yeah certainly um like i said the biggest thing the wins do is you know it gives everybody confidence and obviously helps helps you with the points and um that you know that's takes a lot of pressure off when you can knock a couple wins down the longer you go without win it just seems like the more the pressure starts building and just that weight gets a little heavier on your back so it's definitely you know like a weight lifted you know being able to to get some wins and and then just kind of loosen you up a little bit you don't feel that pressure and you're able to you know just seems like it makes things a lot easier yeah you can breathe a little bit and you know in the event that you hit a speed bump which everybody does at some point in the year it's not uh it's not the end of the world you're not freaking out you can you can kind of reset yourself to where you were previous to that man norwalk was such an interesting race day and it was a great race day for you guys came up one run short in the final round but uh you were the quicker car in the final round it just didn't break your way also having the ford executives there you know, I know how Bob is on a regular basis. He didn't live too far from me, so I'm very familiar with his kind of uh, high-energy personality. When you add in the Ford executives at the race, I'm guessing that kind of clicks into overdrive. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, a couple of those guys were um, pretty far up the ladder, and um, it was exciting to have them out. Um, that They hadn't been to a drag race before, and they're, you know, a couple of the, the main guys, you know, that are – they're involved in signing off on the program and not only were they there you know to to watch our program but they were there for the that new electric class yes. that they're getting into which is exciting to you know hear about that that you know any NHRA is coming out with that new class because you know the electrics the way everything's going you know that direction so I think it's good for the sport um good for all the you know automotive manufacturers to get involved in it and i know ford's excited about it so um you know it, that's that's a whole nother ball game there that elect the electric oh, yeah. cars so it's exciting to watch but yeah it was great having them there um they got a kick we ran over 330 a few times and you know they they got a kick out of that <laughs> so i was you know yeah there again you know it was it was just a relief you know to put on a good show for them and you know have them have a good outing there so um it was it was an exciting day it was and and from your position i'm interested in this because when i rolled into the racetrack on sunday morning you know everything that i had read that about the forecast and even what i had been seeing for that day was it was going to be a really hot day and it was going to be almost full sun so i was expecting you know i was expecting temperatures probably in the low 90s in a racetrack that would have been let's say 125 to 135 degrees in that window and yet we never really saw that. I mean, every round presented you guys with a bit of a different challenge in terms of the conditions, and your car was incredibly consistent. I mean, it ran a couple of 92s and then the 91 in the final. So between these rounds, uh, were you making, I guess, coming into Sunday, did, did your plan kind of have to change, or were you of the mindset that you're just going to take it as it came? 
Um, we were um, trying to, you know, we didn't run as good in qualifying as yeah. I was trying to. So it just kind of came together on Sunday. It finally just all clicked. Um, but the biggest challenge there that weekend was that weather. Yeah. I mean, the, the wind blowing, the sun in and out was, you know, the track temp was going up 10 15 degrees up or down you know in the course of five or ten minutes it was insane hard to to deal with (laughs) and then the the atmosphere changing like it was the water grains the air temperature it was it was probably about the most difficult um race day that we've seen i mean we were speeding the blower up and down trying to you know watching the weather on the pagers and it's just like Man, he almost didn't believe it. It's like it was changing so fast. So there was a lot of obstacles going on that day for sure. It was it was definitely a challenging day. And it was, it's got to be a satisfying thing to hit the window, though. I mean, really, every single time you went down the racetrack, the car seemed to have been doing, at least outwardly, it was, it was if anything else, wildly consistent. To run basically within a hundredth over the course of second, third, and fourth rounds, uh, despite the fact that you're talking about this kind of yo-yo of weather, certainly means that, the things responding to what you're asking it to respond to. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it was. And, um, you know, we were able to keep up with it. You know, we were scrambling, but we were able to, you know, when it came time to run, we were able to, you know, have it set up like, like it needed to be set up, you know, but, um, and, and is this a team that a year ago, if presented with the same scenario, the same conditions, the same kind of yo-yo, would this team have been able to respond in that way a year ago versus what the team is and how they've come together now? Um, probably, but you know, definitely, you know, you know, it's kind of like this is, you know, I've been here for I came here about halfway through yeah. nineteen, and then last year was just kind of, you know, right. everybody knows what last year was <laughs> right. like. So this year, I mean, we've you know got. A, few new guys so you know it's just trying to get everybody to gel everybody on the same page you know doing what is expected and you know the more you're together the better you start gelling and 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 that's important you know because it's you know you just can't build a winning team overnight you know it takes takes time and takes you know work to get there so yeah i definitely feel like we're we've made a lot of progress and things are starting to come together and you know run a lot smoother than they have you know your career really started in earnest back in 92 and you were working uh, uh with larry minor on on a cruise pedragon's car and and that was of course a, a huge year then you have 05 with selzy as the crew chief and, and you win the championship that year what are the things that you take you've taken with you through those experiences not necessarily 05 but when you were coming up actually you know wrenching on the car as one of the crew guys and now you're the crew chief what are the things that you looked at or who are the people that you enjoyed working for the most over those years that you took some stuff with and said you know what I like the way this guy does this maybe in terms of managing people or how he deals with the guys who are those people that influenced you the most and how you do your job um yeah that was that was important Lee Beard was um, I learned a lot from Lee. He was really organized and methodical and, you know, very professional and the way everything was, you know, tip top. So I definitely learned a lot from, from Lee Beard. Um, Alan Johnson and I were good friends when I was tuning Gary's car and he was tuning Tony's car. We spent a lot of time together and he helped me a lot, taught me a lot of stuff. And, 
Um, he was definitely, you know, one of the probably the guy I respect, you know, a lot out there. Austin Coyle at Forces yeah. was really, you know, instrumental in, you know, the knowledge that he has. And, you know, everybody does things a little bit different. And you just kind of, like you said, you take a little from this guy, you take a little from this guy, and you kind of put, you know, you take your own and you just kind of, you know, add it all together. And unfortunately, I've been, you know, had the opportunity to race around, you know, some, some really good people. And um, Jimmy Proc and I, when we worked together at John Forces, we, you know, worked well together and, you know, and made a good team there. So just, you know, everybody's got a little bit. And, yeah, absolutely. And, it's a, it's like baking a cake. You know, you get your get your ingredients from around the kitchen, and and after you mix them all up, you get your you get a cake there. And, and certainly, that's what you've been able to do over the course of your career. Do you still have the bright red McDonald's pants that you guys had to wear? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I do. <laughs> I'm imagining you probably burned those things. I wouldn't fit if I did. So. <laughs> So, man, the Western Swing, you know, we've talked about the uh, challenging weather conditions uh, of Norwalk, and, and we all know the story of going up uh, to Bandemir. It really is kind of a game changer for, for so many of the teams. There are people that are actually going to sit that race out, which, thankfully, you guys aren't one of them. You're going to be up there running. Um, you know, is it really just open the book from last year or from 2019 on Bandemir? Because you really can't carry anything from Norwalk to that racetrack, can you? No, um, not a lot. Um, but you know, you, you just make your, your changes for Denver. I mean, we're leaving Norwalk, you know, positive things yeah. running good. So, you know, you leave the car pretty much set up like that. Then you just make those changes to adapt for that altitude, which is basically a mile high, you know, over 5,000 feet. So that's, you know, raising the compression, you know, way up, speeding the blower, way up basically trying to make up for what you're going to lose in the air and the um, barometric pressure to get the engine make the power that you know get it back as close as you can you can't get it to sea level sure what it is it's sea level what we're normally dealing with but um, we're able to get pretty close these days um, with it Um, but you know there's still changes you got to make and and it's always you know a roll of the dice when you go there yes you know that place can be hot and tricky too but it's a great place to race and a great facility and i always look forward to going there oh it's great and and i think one of the things i'm looking forward to is uh, most about the western swing is the three races in a row which i know puts a strain on teams and everything but you know really we've had a lot of good racing this year but it's like every time we get a little momentum it's like all right now we're off for two weeks all right now we're not doing anything next weekend and that's all well and good but i think to really kind of get everybody in the right mode here having these three races in a row really does reset the tone of the season for me. I mean, I don't know if they can speak the same for you, but I feel like it's almost like a restart for us. And once we get going here, the Western swing, it really doesn't let up until we're done. Exactly. It's kind of like the calm before the storm. And we have had a pretty um, slow pace schedule wise so far, but yeah, it, it really kicks into gear now, which, you know, on one hand, it's a good thing. You kind of get into race mode you kind of can stay in race mode rather than you know sometimes it's hard you race a week and you have two weeks off and you know but um it'll be exciting i always love the western swing be a little different not going to seattle this year but you know pomona that that could be challenging there depending upon how hot it is and 
You oh know? yeah. So that's that's something <laughs> that we're we that we haven't done you know in a long long time. Go out there this time of year. So that'll be a, a challenging event. I have a feeling. But yeah, it's time to get going, and then that countdown starts here after Indy, and you know that's when it all. Yeah, that's when it really all counts and everybody goes uh really kind of locks it down at that point and makes the sprint for the uh makes the sprint for the finish um outside of of drag racing i know you've got some cool stuff and i want to talk about your truck do you still have the raptor because that raptor you had was killer do you still have that truck no i don't but um i've had several of those and i yeah that's my favorite vehicle the, the ford raptor i'm i'm waiting to get a new one as soon as they come back out here at the end of the year it sounds like so and you actually get out there you actually take them out and use them right i mean you take them out and use them the way that they were intended to be used like in the desert right well i actually have a race truck okay spec trophy truck that's a ford got the raptor body on it and stuff but it's a it's a full race truck that uh, my son and i race out and out west nevada um, the Mint 400 and the best in the desert races and you can race Baja or any of that stuff. So that's what we actually go out and, and beat up out there in the desert a couple times a year, which that's a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and talk a little bit about that because, like, you know, Prudhomme, there's been, like, this attraction over the years of uh, of drag racing guys that have gone, you know, desert racing and stuff like that. And obviously it's primarily guys that grew up on the West Coast because as a guy from New England, I can tell you that what we don't have here is deserts. So there's not a lot of desert racing that happens in this part of the world. But what was your attraction to that growing up? I mean, was it Big Ole and Parnelli Jones? Was it uh, was it Mickey Thompson? I mean, what, what were the people or who were the, the rigs and people that attracted you to that style of racing? Yeah, that, I mean, growing up out there in California, and then I grew up in Huntington Beach, but then we moved to uh, um, Hemet out by um, Temecula there, and it was just desert out there. It was just dirt. We rode motorcycles. We went camping, and and then, of course, you know, the off-road, which Larry Miner was involved oh, yeah. with that big Ole and all that. So when I got out of high school, I raced off-road with, Miners, his sons Chris Miner and Larry Jean, and then you know I was just hooked. Like that was, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. That the off-road racing in a truck. We raced a truck and class eight truck. So just yeah, I just always loved the dirt, and still have motorcycles today, and get out when we can. But um, yeah, Walker Evans, Robbie Gordon, um, just the list goes on with the guys that used to race out there in the desert back in the day yeah that's killer and for anybody listening uh that doesn't know what a trophy truck is could you give them a little rundown because a trophy truck is as badass as uh, i'm not saying it's more badass than a funny car or a top fuel dragster but i am saying that a trophy truck is like top five of the coolest racing vehicles in the world so if you can give give people a rundown of this thing it'll probably blow their minds a little bit yeah it's i mean it's um, basically it's probably got 24, 26 inches of front wheel travel and probably 28 to 30 in the rear. And, um, mine's a spec, um, trophy truck. So it has the spec motor in it. That's the difference between an unlimited okay. trophy truck and, and what I have, but, um, they make probably 600 horsepower is what I have. And, but it's uh, it's amazing. It's hard, kind of like driving a funny car. It's hard to explain to somebody unless 
they've been in it, and that's kind of the same thing with those <laughs> trucks. The suspension that they have and the holes and the things they go over is what, what blows your mind. You just can't believe how smooth it rides. and At, like, and at, how, he, at crazy speeds. Like you're going 80, 100 miles an hour driving over these chuckles that would swallow up a Volkswagen, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's um, it's cool stuff for sure. Um, anybody who hasn't seen it, it's, you know, there's some cool videos on line or, you know, get out to one of these off-road races. It's, it's definitely an, an exciting exciting thing to watch. What did your uh, what did your off-road racing buddies think when you got into a Nitro Funny Car? How interested were they when you actually started driving during your career? Ten national event wins, multiple-time U.S. Nationals winner. Uh, how many questions did you get from those guys about getting in, into one of those cars? Yeah, um, you know, everybody <laughs> thought it was cool and you know, but like I said, once again, it's just hard to explain, yeah. you know, somebody asks you, well, how is it? Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to explain, you know, I mean, you hear the, the right. old terms like, you know, John Forrest said, it's like being shot out of a cannon, which right. is probably not too far from the truth, <laughs> you know, but yeah, that was, you know, that was a great time of my life driving the funny car also. That's, you know, definitely second to none, like, you know, what that experience is like, so. Well, man, I appreciate you taking the time to chat today, and uh, it's it's always it's always fun to watch you race. It's always fun to watch the teams you're tuning race because uh, you know we look at your track record of success, and it really is uh, it's phenomenal. And uh, you know, I said this in the open of the show, but you know, you have a long way to go in your career. But when we look at even what you've accomplished to this point, uh, you're in some very rare company. So definitely appreciate you taking the time. Good luck for the rest of the season, and um, we'll see you up there in the mountain, man. All right, well, thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'll see you soon. Awesome chat there with Mike Neff and a guy who is uh, not only very interesting, certainly incredibly talented and uh, is leading, as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, leading the points right now with his team in the Camping World Drag Racing Series and the Nitro Funny Car side. We'll see how adaptable their program is as they head up to Bandamere Speedway in just a couple weeks. We continue with the Nitro Funny Car category, but switch gears completely now to a man who is trying to break his way into the category, who has begun making strides, strides I should say, to do just that. His name is Travis Shoemake, a second-generation drag racer, the son of Trip Shoemake, a guy who was well-loved in the 1970s and 80s, driving for Billy Meyer, driving for Johnny Loper, and really anybody who would give him a seat in a funny car. And we're going to talk about Travis, we're going to talk about Trip. we're going to talk about his journey into the world of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing and how he is trying to work his way into this sport in a way that, well, frankly, we've not really seen anybody else do before. Welcome for the first time on the NHRA Insider Podcast, it's Travis Shoemake. Hey, Travis, how's things in your world today? Good. How are you doing, Brian? Doing really well, man. I'm, I'm really excited to catch up with you today and talk to you because uh, obviously we've read several stories come out across different uh, platforms, but I really wanted to uh, be able to have kind of a, a conversation with you and have people understand a little bit more about you that maybe you can't pick up in just the, the printed words. So thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. You're right. I haven't really had a chance to talk to anybody. So, um, yeah, it'll be good, good to hear it from my own mouth, I guess. That's it, man. That's totally it. And so I kind of want to start this where I met you, uh, which was at Gainesville. Uh, we had substandard Mexican food, uh, which had, I think, even worse service. But the conversation was great. The group of people we were with was fantastic. And um, I guess I want to ask you what led you to Gainesville this year and kind of leading up to that conversation uh, what was the turning point for you to decide to really pursue driving a nitro funny car yeah well i, I think you left out the delicious margaritas for 5.99 uh, <laughs> again I, I value those things as a new yorker a 
uh, margarita and guacamole are, are really what drove me to drag racing. Uh, now, <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I try to go to at least one or two races a year, always to Phoenix is kind of our, our family's home track. Um, and things weren't lining up right for that to work, um, even after COVID. And, yeah. you know, I had booked a trip to Arizona for the race and uh, that quickly got canceled. So the Thursday before Gainesville, I uh, connected with Amanda. I have a, a pretty good friendship with, with Amanda Busick and decided to come down to Gainesville on the fly there. Um, and that night at dinner, you know, we, we were exchanging stories about my father and there were stories I'd, I'd never heard before. And I, I think I have a, a vision of what my dad's legacy was because it's what I've been told by my mom and my sister or I've read in, you know, a good Phil Burgess article. Uh, and to hear suddenly a different story from Todd and then you pipe in with a, you know, a, a quick anecdote. And then uh, when Tony came later, a story about Cruz and my dad, it kind of was a, a new lens on, on a relationship that I had thought, you know, was contained to the 15 years I knew my father. Yeah. Um, so it, it made me feel connected to him. Um and, you know, as the weekend went on, we had more and more conversations over dinners or at the track um, with different folks about the idea of me getting into racing and, and to kind of bring not only just that next generation of, of a dream of mine, but also a little bit of that diversity topic um, to the sport, which would felt maybe much needed. Um, so, you know, we, we had a great time at the track. I uh, was, was sitting in traffic outside of the, uh, the track on the way home and uh, called my sister up and said, you know, I've been talking about it for 25 years, but I think it's time to uh, put some pen to paper and put together uh, a couple coins and head down to Frank Holly's. Uh, so although it's been rapid, I guess it's been what three, four months now since this uh, kind of came into actualization. Um, it's been something that's in, been in the works since I was a kid. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's to me the neatest part of the story where it's um, it, you know, it's not just something that you woke up one morning and decide, you know what? I think I want to do this. It has been rolling around in your mind and it has uh, probably bubbled up to the surface once or twice, but now, you know, all things being equal, the timing has come to, to a pass where you're at a point in your life where you want to pursue this and you want to, you want to move ahead with it. I will tell you that the amount of people I have sat with at dinner uh, over the course of my life in drag racing that have said, you know, I think I'm going to go to Frank Holly school and do this, that, and the other thing. And then they do nothing it is far outweighs. Basically it's everyone else. And then you, so, so you've already, um, you know, and it's been to me the, the, the show of commitment when you went down, you got a super comp license and then you went back, uh, and licensed to get a nostalgia top fuel license in, in Frank's car. And I guess I want to take that as kind of the next part of this story in the sense of, uh, you know, driving a super comp car is cool and all, but then, man, it is a totally different kettle of fish to get in that, to actually get in a center steer uh, funny car. So I guess talk to me about the first two experiences at Frank Holly's, whether they were the teaching experiences of Frank or the actual physical experiences of driving the race car. Yeah, so I guess Frank knew that I had uh, some larger goals here, so he immediately started with the pressure. He put me in the first seat of 16 in the class and said, uh, Travis is going first because his dad was a race car driver and he thinks he's going to be good at it. So every time we go out to the track, you all are going to watch Travis show if he's truly going to be a pro. Uh, so we started off the morning with a good amount of pressure. Uh, and it, it's, it's been that way since, uh, he, you know, he's such, such a great teacher and a, a great role model. And, and the time you get to spend with him when you're doing the, the funny car, it's just the two of us. I mean, my, my mom and my partner and Amanda came down, but the one-on-one -on -one time that I have with Frank between runs, is just this, it's just unprecedented to have access to a driver who's watching your onboard cameras and giving you the feedback, you know, um, it, strapping into the car for the first time, it was definitely, uh, when it started to feel real, real, you know, as they, uh, lowered the body down over me, uh, just for fun. And I asked them to, it's not part of the procedure. I'm like, guys, drop the body. I want to sit yeah. in here for a second. <laughs> right. Uh, 
but it was just yeah, such a such a cool experience to do it with Frank because my dad and him had quite a long history. And, yes, and, they did. You know, there's that yeah, my '82 World Finals is a big part of our family's history as well as Frank's. You know, that's when uh, my dad came in as the blocker for for Billy Meyer to help uh, keep Frank out of the, the championship. And my dad ended up winning the race, and Frank won the championship, and uh, it was just cool to to be there with him and. You know, hearing him tell that version of the story, you always know what you see on uh, Diamond Peace Sports and from your mom, but you don't get to hear from the guy who was in the shutoff area waiting for my dad to come around the corner. And so that was, you know, on top of the, the knowledge that I was being, you know, inundated with were also the personal connections to my dad. And, you know, you were a racer as a kid. I mean, you, you've you posted about it on social media and stuff. You guys, you know, anything that had wheels and a motor on it, you know, was part of your life, racing go-karts and everything. So, you know, does any of that, as you get into this funny car and it's crazy and it's loud and it's vibrating and it's angry, does any of that reflex instinct come back from when you're a kid or is it really kind of a clean slate experience? You know, I think there's uh, quite a bit of connection from the shifter car racing, particularly at PKRA, which is our track out in Phoenix. You know, on the back stretch, you can get it up to about 100 miles an hour. So at 13 years old, man, I kind of have this. We have this the shoemake face, we call it, where we bite our bottom <laughs> lip and our tongue at the same time. Uh, my dad always did it, and I do it, and uh, I felt that feeling coming back. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a little bit of connection, but certainly nothing prepares you for, you know, that, that initial burnout and that uh, the pull of the parachutes. Boy, the first time I popped the parachutes, I thought something had gone wrong. Everyone was like, oh, wait, you've been waiting your whole life for this moment. That's not something wrong. That's the bear. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Did the tires fall off? What is that? Oh, the bear shoot. You know, you uh, you were making your runs down at Bradenton, Florida, which is a it's a nice long race track, and it's certainly a place that Frank likes to spend time and and teach a lot of his schools in that in that area. Um, I guess from the from the timeline perspective of you and Frank working together, and and I realize that you're gonna, I believe your plan is to go back and make more runs in this car just for uh, comfortability's sake. But did you did you pick up the funny car as quick as you expected, quicker than you expected, or slower than you expected? I think I picked it up right about as I expected, maybe a little bit quicker. I'm not gonna toot my own horn sure. here, but you know, my dad uh, used to strap me into paula martin's funny car when i was a teenager and nice. we would uh, sit in the garage and pretend you know we'd stage it and uh go through the whole process and he would even you know change the way he was coming in the idle when i'd uh, open the fuel all the way <laughs> at the, in the second beam so there were some parts i feel like that prepared me for that it kind of was autopilot pulling the chutes turning off the fuel um yeah i guess yeah so maybe a little bit of the genetics and maybe a little bit of training from 20 years ago but uh you know, certainly Frank spends quite a bit of time preparing you. And you actually get a manual, which is just, I think, so iconic. I get a, a driver's manual of how to operate a funny car. Wow. So I spent quite a bit of time studying that as well, um, just to make sure that my time on the track was used wisely. You know, I didn't want to have any dud runs because those dud runs are costly as well. Uh, so I, I was had my head in the game, you know, pre and post quite a bit. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that, that, among other things, we'll talk about, but one of the things that makes you unique in terms of your approach here and your mentality is I think so many people come at this from a different angle in their mind than you are. I see you taking this as a very kind of pragmatic, step-by-step vision of what you want to accomplish. I think a lot of people look at what they want the end goal to be and work backwards, but it does seem to me, from the outside looking in, that you have formulated a plan that you think will work in terms of how you want to uh, evolve yourself and take these next uh, steps in your career. And I want to talk about that a little bit because people who have, you know, spent their life, if you will, just in the in the grid of the sport and then want to try to make a break into the into the professional ranks, most of them don't get there because they get lost along the way trying to actually make a plan to execute. But you definitely seem to have a plan. 
Yeah, and there's so many ways you can come out racing, and I, you know, I think people, gosh, she's never, you know, never been in a car. How dare he just show up? And we could go through a laundry list of folks who've just shown up. Oh yeah. And so I think for me, it's it's having the kind of the, the business model, or I guess the strategic plan that I've I've been, you know, looking at this month by month, and it's it's crazy to put in a, a sponsorship deck when you've never been in a funny car that you'll be racing at the world finals. But having a, a level of confidence and and strategy behind that, I, I think is you know something that's important for the sport. You know, it's not just a hobby to me. This is a business opportunity uh, for for drag racing. I want to bring more dollars to the sport that has shaped my life. Um, and not, I mean, I guess I get paid a little bit, I hear. But I, I'm looking more for, uh, you know, just revitalizing the sport and, and trying to bring a, a new view and, and more dollars to the racetrack. Yeah, and that's to me is, to me, uh, when I look at, you know the potential anytime we have a a new team anytime we have a new driver a new person somebody that is coming into our sport it's always cool and interesting so many times though it's it's somebody that has the same they're looking at this thing the same way as everybody else from a business standpoint and you're not and that's what what makes me excited secondarily what makes me excited is the fact that and i will not go into too many details here because your life is your life but what you do for a living outside of the racetrack that you're working to be on uh suits you well for having conversations with corporations having conversations with potential business partners and potential you know advertising sponsor partnerships and I feel like that is is your secret weapon in so many ways. You know, the driving you will learn, the driving you will be conditioned to and come around, but but man, you can't learn how to put together a great deck. You have that in your back pocket. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. You know, I think the way that my storyline has aligned, not only just from, you know, being a second-generation driver, but also being a nonprofit fundraiser. So I'm tasked with, you know, I raise a couple million dollars a year, and every January that bank goes down to zero, and I got to fill it back up again. Uh, and so not only do I have to always work the hustle kind of year-round, but I'm also dealing with high-caliber folks. I mean, I, yeah. I'm pretty comfortable in a boardroom full of millionaires um, and telling funny anecdotes and uh, making people feel special and, and connected to whatever it is that I'm selling. And I believe that I have a pretty clear path to connecting you know, new sponsors and supporters to our sport. Yeah, it's, um, it's an exciting thing to think about. And um, I, I just like the, I like the freshness of your take on how you're coming into the sport and the fact that, you know, you have this generational connection to your family. It's a very unique thing. Your, your entire position is, is very unique. You mentioned it before. We're going to talk about it now is the fact that you're a gay man. Whoa. This is the, you know, this is, dun, dun, dun. This, is <laughs> this is like for so many people, this has become some, some major part of the story and it is who you are. And it's just like, I guess we could talk about Antron Brown as being a black man. It's fine. But, it's chromoly steel in an engine. It, it doesn't matter who you uh, hang out with uh, in your free time, right? Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I think that there's there's two ways to look at that, and I think you know I, I don't want to say we'll talk about it once and never talk about it again because I don't think that's fair. You know, from a representation standpoint, and I right. think that's what's important. You know, I, it'd be a, a a mistake of mine to downplay this for the sake of those who have raced before me in, in silence, not in the closet, or. Um, you know, those who in the future want to be a race car driver and would like to see someone like them, you know, suit up and take the track. And um, so to, to not be aware of the privilege that I have, um, it would be a shame to just say, let's not talk about it. But, um, you know, I don't think it is the main storyline here. No. I hope that I hope the main storyline is my shitty reaction time. And I know I just touched on it. <laughs> Whoops. It's you know, the I, Internet, I, man. I think, it's the Internet. We can say whatever we want. I think here. we'll get past it. But uh <laughs> You know, I just I think that everyone at this point it's 2021. Somebody, you've got a gay cousin, a gay uncle, a gay brother. Why aren't they at the racetrack? 
Um, and I, I don't think I'm any kind of hero, but I, I do think it's a story that needs to be told and shared. No, I think it absolutely is. And, you know, there there is there is a 0% chance that from the 70 years of NHRA drag racing's existence along the way, we have not had gay men and women racing in this sport. Now they've done it. They've done it in silence. Basically. That's the only way you can say that they've done it. And you know, it's, it's, it's foolhardy for, for people to think that, that anyway, I guess the point I'm trying to get at here is the line that you just, you just mentioned is a difficult one because I look at NASCAR and I look at Bubba Wallace and I look at the fact that all I, all that guy wants to do is show up and drive a race car and yet he ends up getting, not even by his own hand, he ends up getting sometimes injected in these situations just because he's a black man that wants to go there and drive the race car. And I think for you, for me, I guess this watching this story play out, the burden the, the the burden of carrying the representation side that you mentioned and also not making this a central point of of what you're doing is kind of a weird line to walk right you don't want to you don't want to exclude the very people that you're providing kind of a flagship for but at the same time you don't want to just be the flagship to be the flagship yeah you know and i i think there's a balance of uh, you know selling out and you know leveraging this as a, as a marketing tool and being authentically who i am but on the Bubba Wallace, you know, side, it's a fight every Sunday to pick what sponsor is going to be on his car. And exactly. I hope that, sadly, that is a problem that I have, that there are, between Dr. Pepper, Burger King, and Reese's Pieces, we can't decide who gets to be on my funny car on <laughs> right. Sunday. Um, and, and a lot of those dollars are being directed to, you know, to, to support diversity in the sport. And I, I'm so proud to see NASCAR and NFL and those things, you know, during the month of June, now there's a, well, Rainbow NASCAR logo was kind of already there, but... Uh, you know, the, the, everyone's got a rainbow in the background and to, sh to show that inclusion. And I just think we haven't had a gateway or a vessel to do that in our sport. And so I think it's a big opportunity, uh, not just for representation, but, you know, financial support. That really is. And, you know, as um, I've always been fascinated with drag racing on a personal level, uh, and it's the cliche thing to say, but it is very real where you roll into the gate of the racetrack and nobody talks about anything else other than racing. And they're not just doing it because they feel uncomfortable, but they're doing it because it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. You're at the racetrack and we're all there together. Um, and you know, it's, I've been to Saudi Arabia. I was, I was on a drag strip in Saudi Arabia with people that could not have been more different than me. And there we are. And the guys have, uh, you know, the guys have miles as dirty as a sailor and, and they're, everyone's dropping F-bombs mm -hmm. and telling these stories. And it's great. And I've been to, I've been to drag strips down South where you see every shape, size, form and fashion of person just hanging out, doing their thing. And what I think so interesting about, about our sport too, is when you have conversations with people and over the course of time, I literally know people from every end of the political spectrum that all love drag racing. They may not agree on anything else that happens in life, but they love to drag race. And I think that's a, such a crazy, neat thing about our sport that it can become this this kind of centralized passion for people that come from every every single different direction of the culture. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, being on the, the fringe of the sport, you know, I spend some time in the pits with, you know, former friends of my father's or even friends I've made on my own. You know, I've, I always have felt welcome and included in this sport. And so I think that the challenge isn't really overcoming that I'm going to, yeah. you know, feel uncomfortable or people are going to be uncool with this in, in, in the pits. That's not a problem. I, I, I think we're going to be just fine. I think it's just uh, having a conversation and, you know, getting normalizing this topic uh, sooner than later. But, yeah, again, I am fully comfortable and fully supported. Good Lord. The amount of nice messages I've received from active drivers, that's probably been the coolest part is, 
you know, when you get a surprise message from Alexis DeJoria or um, Matt Hagan, and you're like, wait, what? A screenshot, call your mom. Guess who just freaking DM'd me? Oh, my God. It's a, <laughs> it's a pr- pretty cool experience that you're going through. No, it really is. It's great. And I, now I want to talk to you about the actual things that you find you believe will be the largest challenges outside of raising money. Um which I guess maybe that's the answer. But when you look at the road you have ahead and what you want to accomplish, the time frame you want to accomplish it in, what are the things that stick out to you as, you know, this is my, this is the thing I need to focus on. You know, the old, the obstacle is the way. What is the thing that requires most of your focus right now to actually advance your goals? So if you're telling me I can't say it's sponsorship, I, although it is sponsorship yeah. it's all day, it's all I think about all day, every night. I'm just, I live on LinkedIn like a creep. I'm, if I have another funny car mocked up with another company's logo on it, I'm, I'm becoming a pro at this. Uh, but, the, uh, you know, I'd say my, my biggest concern in, in the short term is seat time, right? There's only so many days you can go to Frank's in the middle of July. And, yeah. um, you know, at some point my American Express is going to stop working and my partner is going to kill me because <laughs> we're going to have to sell everything we own. Uh, so, you know, finding a little bit of seed funding in the beginning, but, but seat time both in Frank's car and in the nitro car. Um, and then even, yeah, looking at timing and schedules, right? I've said I want to, you know, try to at least qualify for the World Finals this year. Well, everyone's out on California on the Western Swing. Then they come back to Topeka. So by the time I could get in a fuel car, we're looking at, you know, Brainerd or, or Indy. And so now, shoot, Travis, you're seven weeks from the World Finals. How are you going to make this happen? And so uh, the pressure is a little bit one on on seat time, you know, sponsorship and the aggressive timeline I've set for myself that I, I think I can pull off. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's definitely – neat and again i like i do like the fact that you publicly said that you wanted to race at the finals i feel like it's um it's a when you say things in public especially for a guy who's approaching this like you are you've you now feel obligated to to pull it off it's not just like a little whisper like i might try to show up at the finals like no i'm saying it i'm gonna say it out loud and that way maybe i'll speak it into existence and kind of move your your timeline ahead if i can ask and if you have an answer uh whose team can you would you are you talking to about trying to uh, license with in terms of using their of, their their equipment yeah any of them all of them 12 of them every <laughs> uh i'm i'm you know not quite there yet in a, in a public setting i, I confirmed sure. via text message this morning that i am i am not to be speaking of the topic yet okay um but yeah i mean i'm i think we're, we're getting closer to, to that conversation um you know, probably by the end of the week, I'll, I'll have a better a better look at who I'll be who I'll be licensing with. Certainly, um, don't know that I'll be driving with that team, but yeah, yeah, but that's, exactly. I'll be hopping in. Sure, and that's uh, that was more of uh, my question. I'm glad that there is forward progress there, and I'll be uh, interested to learn about it with everybody else. So, yeah. I, I guess the last thing I want to the last thing I want to kind of uh, end our conversation with here is as we kind of draw this this full circle. Um, you mentioned about feeling, you know, really close to your dad and, and, and the conversations we were having at dinner and, and being able to hear stories from a different perspective than you had heard them before. Um, at what point would you, what, at what element of this would your dad be most proud of? Would he be most proud of you going out and getting licensed? Would he be most proud of you pursuing this in the manner you are? But what is the thing that trips you make would say and look you in the eye and say, this makes me so proud? I think there's two, if I'm allowed to split it into two. I'd say when the time the time I uh, go 271 miles an hour and beat his personal speed record, <laughs> I think he'd be uh, pretty proud of that. You know, he, he always wanted to go 300, and, you know, right prior to his passing, he was saying he was going to try to get a one-race deal with force just to make a 300-mile-an-hour pass, and that was really big for him. So I'd say not only, you know, even if I just hit 300, that, that feeling that was a specific speed that was really important to him. And the other would be, 
being at Firebird. I mean, we, my dad was the first funny car to light the engines uh, in 1984 there. And it's, it's our place that I grew up at. All of my memories of racing are really around that track. Um, and it's, that's just our home. And so to pull into the staging lane, strapped into a funny car, um, will be a, a really big thing that I think that he would be most proud of to be in our home turf. And it's probably the time I'll feel the most connected to him. That's fantastic. Well, Travis, I wish you all the luck. And um, I don't know so much if you need it. I, I am I am continually excited about the, the path you're taking here. I'm excited about the, the implications for our sport in terms of having um, a, a person as motivated as you are on the business side of things and looking at this in a new prism. And you know how motorsports works. There's a lot of monkey see, monkey do out there. And you're a person who's not following that traditional look at pursuing your business partners. So I feel like you could be a guy that's kicking a door open on the business side of this thing that uh, has needed to have been kicked open for a while. So appreciate everything you're doing, Travis. Congratulations on your licensing progress so far. And I will be looking forward to hearing who you're going to get the next step going with. I appreciate your support, Brian. You've been here from the beginning. I blame you. This is your fault, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take some responsibility. Absolutely no questions asked right there. Thanks, Travis. Have a great day. All right. Hey, you too. Bye-bye. And that takes us to the end of our show. It was a couple of conversations, two very different people, two very different stories, two very different places in their careers in the sport of drag racing. One man trying to break his way in and the other man well-established and really on path to be a Hall of Famer if he is not qualified for that honor already. Next week, we'll be getting ready for the NHRA Mile High Nationals at Bandemir Speedway in Morrison, Colorado. If you've not gotten your tickets yet, you best get them soon. Saturday and Sunday are already verging on a sellout before we've even gotten there, and Friday is filling up fast. Go to NHRA.com, or you can visit Bandemir Speedway's website to get your tickets to the Mile Highs for the first time since 2019. We kick off the Western Swing, and we'll be kicking off more conversations on next week's episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, as we have plenty of stories to tell and plenty of reasons to be excited about going up the mountain to Bandamere and about heading to the western part of the United States for Bandamere, Sonoma, and Pomona, California. It's going to be great. Make sure you come back and listen to us next week. Thank you to Travis Shoemake and, of course, to Mike Neff for coming on the show today and giving us their time. We'll be back again next week with more stories from inside the world of NHRA Camping World, Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series, E3 Spark Plugs Pro Mod, Constant Aviation Factory Stock Showdown, and other categories on the slate. Thanks for listening.